you a, just throw loads of data and statistics and evidence at you from a variety of sources, not just the ones we produce in the Home Office, but from a variety of people, um, some of whom are actually in the room today, um, really just to try and give you a picture of the migration situation as it is now in the UK, and some of the factors that are influencing current policy debates. So that's really what it's about, because sometimes there's quite a lot of misunderstanding, um, mixed interpretations of the data, um, and hopefully, hopefully I'll bring some clarity to that. The first thing I want to show you, um, I'll spend a few slides talking about this, is just the long-term trends in migration in the UK. Um, this is essentially the standard ONS chart on net migration, with inflows, um, essentially the top red line, and outflows, um, the green line, and the difference between them is net migration, which are the bars along the bottom. Now, ONS um, have published this data. Uh, essentially, you've got long-term immigration data set going back to, um, I think, sort of around here. And then, but, but ONS have been collecting migration data through the International Passenger Survey since the 1960s. So actually, there's a long-term trend going back to 1964. And one of the clear, obvious facts from the data is that the situation over the last 15 years is radically different from the situation in the UK prior to that. It's a very obvious point, it's a very simple point. A lot of people, most people working in migration on a regular basis understand that, but it's not often, often understood in terms of public debate. Um, and clearly it's, that's kind of in public debate at the moment. The levels of net migration are massively higher, and they started rising from basically sort of the mid to late 1990s, um, probably post-97 really is the kind of significant jump, but it was, there were some jumps um, before that. Um, Essentially, two things were going on. Um, Post-97, there were various changes in the immigration rules. Um, relaxation of primary purpose rule being kind of a significant factor in that. And then, of course, post-2004, there was also EU accession, which um, drove some of the um, further changes there. Um, I put a few kind of headline uh, things along the bottom. Um, and it's kind of interesting when we think about current policy debates, that some really big, significant bits of legislation, like the 1971 Immigration Act, 1981 Nationality Act, didn't really have a big impact in kind of modern day terms. I mean, you can see impacts, small impacts, and slight declines in the immigration and the inflow line. Um, but, you know, this is not, that is not significant change compared to the sorts of things that we're seeing, um, that we've been seeing over the last 15 years. There's lots of ways of looking at long-term trends in net migration. Um, in the Home Office, we produce grants of settlement, you know, statistics on grants of settlement and grants of citizenship, and again, it's exactly the same picture, really. Um, massive difference between the period post about 1997-98 and what came previously. Um, grants of settlement are the blue, grants of citizenship are the green, but it's the same story. There are other ways of looking at this data, though, and I just wanted to kind of show you something that I only saw relatively recently. I can people see the green bars clear enough on this. Um, this is a piece of work that was done by the House of Commons Library, by um, research from the House of Commons Library, because they did what I did, you know, they've seen the ONS data from Elton and the International Passenger Survey going back to 1964, but then kept being asked the question by members of Parliament, you know, well, what happened prior to that? How's that look in the really long term, you know? 1964 is all right, but what went on before? So they went looking for data, and it's quite hard to find, but what they did was quite smart. They basically modelled the difference between population estimates and fertility and death, and the kind of usual way that you, you'd kind of start modelling population change. Um, and therefore, they created estimates of the net effect. Basically, if you take population, um, 
track the fat debt, just the other way around, um, you kind of come up with a, a difference, which is essentially net migration in sort of very simple terms. Um, now, there's lots of issues with these bars. Um, they will say to you, quite rightly, that you know, the precise levels in these bars are based on models and estimation. They're not precise, mainly because I think population estimates are mid-year estimates going back um, that far to 1922, but Burton's debts are annual estimates. So you kind of get some kind of fuzziness at the, at the boundaries. <coughs> but again, what's very interesting is the changes that we've seen in the last 15 years still are radically different from the changes in immigration going way back, way back. And, you know, there really haven't been any significant changes um, prior to that, except possibly the Irish immigration after the Irish famine in the sort of the 1850s. And I'm not really sure how that would compare to, to these bars. Um, that's a kind of really interesting long-term picture. And, I mean, this is not published information. This was kind of something which produced for MPs, but they're very happy with me sharing that. And just another cut of that same data, just to emphasise, this is the chart with the net migration bars that you saw previously in the blue line, um, and then the, the impact of natural change, which is the green line, and the difference, which is, sorry, not the difference, but cumulative effect of those, which is total population change. That's kind of the basis of their model. And again, this is very, very interesting, because it just shows, prior to relatively recent times, the impact of, on population was basically driven by fertility and natural change. Um, now, despite, I mean, fertility rates kind of collapsed a bit in the UK, like lots of other developed nations, sort of, in, in some recent decades. Actually, in the UK, unlike large parts of Europe, fertility rates have started recovering, but not to the extent that they reached in the post-war baby boom and the 1960s baby boom. But, again, this just emphasised the point that, you know, we were in a very different situation. Previously, fertility and natural change was a, the biggest impact on population change. Um, in recent years, it's kind of 50-50 between migration and natural change. So, I mean, again, just to emphasise the point, the situation we're in now and the situation we've been in essentially over the last 15 years is radically different from anything that this country has experienced um, in the past. What do the latest statistics say? This is a very brief. I'm only going to do one slide on the kind of headline statistics, but just in case you haven't seen them or weren't reading the papers sort of at the end of August when these were released, the total long-term immigration into the UK um, for the year ending December 2011, so basically the year 2011, was 566,000. So that's the overall inflow of people who are intending to change their normal place of residence and stay there for a year or more, essentially. That's the definition of long-term migration. So it excludes all the short-term migrants, people who come in temporarily for less than a year. But this is people who are essentially changing their place of residence and stating that to the International Passenger Survey, which is the basis of these stats. It's been broadly at that level, the inflow, since about 2004, as we saw in the earlier chart. Net migration, the difference between that inflow and the outflows, was 216,000 in the same year. Um, as was reported at the end of August when these stats were released, this was not statistically significantly different from the previous estimate <coughs> the, year, the year before, which was 252,000, although clearly it's, it's, you know, it's a lower central estimate. And again, formal study in this pie chart, um, if you can't read it, essentially that, that segment is people um, from that inflow coming in to look for a definite job, <coughs> job because they've got a definite job, the red is people looking for work. These are people accompanying or joining other migrants. Um, and then formal study is the largest segment um, with 41% of that inflow. The, uh, the other bits are just um, people who respond or other, other categories as well. 
And that's, again, similar to the year before. So the question is, has nothing much changed? Um, it's been a pretty stable picture. I'm going to break down some of these statistics and just show you some of the changes that we have been seeing over recent years. First point, when we talk about net migration and migration statistics, they do include British citizens. It's not all about foreign citizens. Um, and these are the trends in um, flows of British citizens. Again, standard ONS chart. So you've got immigration with the pink line, emigration with the blue line, and net migration with the difference. Unlike other, unlike foreign migrants, of course, there's a net negative migration for British citizens. More British citizens leave the country than <coughs> come back or, you know, or come from abroad. One thing that's obvious here is that there are some rather obvious trends in net migration of British citizens. Um, essentially, this is from 2002 through to 2011, and um, essentially, you know, it was net, net migration was increasing in a negative sense um, up to about 2006, 2007. Um, then it started declining and declined quite sharply um, with the onset of the recession. Um, and since then, it started to recover. Net migration was at a really low point in terms of British citizens, um, just basically after the recession hit in 2008, 2009. Um, it's, it's one of the interesting aspects, I mentioned the recession, because one of the interesting things for people that's kind of counterintuitive is, is the fact that actually British emigration responds in a slightly odd way to economic factors. When the, econo when the economy is weak, um, Brits tend not to go abroad as much. Um, now, a lot of people would not actually assume that when the economy is weak, you can't find jobs at home, people would look abroad. It doesn't appear to be the case from data in recent years. Um, and there's probably lots of quite sensible reasons. You know, I mean, if, if people are out of work, A, they don't look particularly good to new employers, so it's, you know, it's more important for them to um, establish themselves in a job, and then if they're going to apply for something abroad, they would tend to do it from a basis of some security from being in a job. So there's a kind of logic to this, but it's, it's slightly counterintuitive. It does surprise people when you show them. But British emigration, and sorry, British citizens are not only what we're here to talk about when we talk about migration. Um, just a quick picture of the UK population. These were statistics that were produced by ONS and published at the end of August as well. Um, 14% of the UK population was born abroad. Um, it's a big number, but you've got to remember, obviously, a large part of people who were born abroad, they were born abroad decades ago. They've arrived in the UK many, many years ago, and they've since acquired British citizenship. Now, when a lot of analysts, a lot of people look at the data, quite a lot of data looks at country of birth. If you're an analyst at the LFS, you can look at nationality, but the numbers with foreign nationality are much smaller, so a lot of economists and analysts tend to like looking at country of birth data but they are looking at some people who are British citizens when they do that. It's really important to understand that. When you look at people who are actually still foreign nationals resident in the UK, that's 8% of the population. It's basically split roughly half and half from the EU and outside the EU, slightly more from outside the EU. Um, of that 8%, which equates to um, 4 point, just under 5 million resident foreign nationals, 2.3 million are from the European Union, 2.5 million from outside the European Union. And the Europeans are roughly equally split between sort of the old Europe and the new Europe. The new Europe being the kind of accession, um, the recent accession countries that uh, joined the uh, European communities post 2004. Um, the three biggest groups of foreign nationals in the UK now are Polish people, Irish, and Indians, people from, from India originally. Um, and that's, that's kind of, again, interesting because the Polish. Um, 
influx has happened very, very recently and very, very quickly, basically since the 2004 accession. Post-diaspora within the UK prior to 2004 was relatively small, and the numbers of Poles that have arrived here um, to reside long-term, i.e. to stay for more than a year, um, is, is really large. I mean, it's the largest group, 687,000, or one in seven foreign nationals. Um, just to present that slightly different way, again, these are the ONS stats. Um, but essentially, I mean, again, this gives the numbers, you may not be able to read this, but they're foreign nationals, and then the numbers born abroad. And most of the polls, you know, the numbers born abroad are roughly similar to the numbers who are foreign nationals, because if you're a poll, you don't really need to apply for British citizenship now that you're in the European Union. Um, for Indian nationals, it's very different. Um, numbers who were born in India, about 700,000, just about over 700,000. Numbers who are still Indian nationals, 300,000, for example, and that's typical. You know, people within the EU don't really have to apply for citizenship, there's not a lot of benefit in doing so. People from outside the EU will do so, and um, you can see some of that. But it's really complicated, actually, understanding some of these statistics. I mean, the Irish numbers are not that dissimilar. That's not an EU fact. I mean, it's that a lot of Irish immigration, a lot of people from, you know, Irish backgrounds arrived decades and decades and decades ago, between our second, third generation, not individuals who were necessarily born abroad. Um, so it's always complicated, but actually it's quite an interesting perspective to see those two things together. There are lots of subtleties and complexities, of course, when you dig down into the data like that. Um, let's talk a little bit about European citizens who are coming to the UK. Again, standard ONS chart, inflows this time higher than the outflows, and we get a net positive figure. Broadly at similar levels, there are ups and downs, there are ebbs and flows, um, but it's certainly been broadly similar since you know, the last couple of years. Um, again, standard picture. Um, it means there's a net migration, an inward migration of long-term migrants from other EU countries of sort of 60, 70,000 a year, broadly speaking. The largest contribution is, is still from the new accession countries at the moment. Um, people ask what's the impact of the Eurozone crisis? because one would expect if economic conditions are that much poorer in certain parts of Europe, one might expect to see lots of people arriving in, well, leaving their countries and arriving in other parts of the European Union, including the UK. Um, I, one of the lovely things that ONS have done recently, if you haven't played around with the ONS statistics recently, it's worth going and having a look at their spreadsheet, because they allow you to create these sorts of charts on the fly now, and you can select different citizenship groups. This is just the old EU, EU 15, this excludes the accession countries, the new European nations. Um, and you can actually select the reason for migration, and this one happens to be those looking for work. Now, of course, it gets very, very difficult when you start digging down into the data, because we're dealing with a sample survey, and so the numbers that generate these estimates are relatively small in terms of numbers of responses when you kind of dig down into particular subgroups. So some of the variability you'll see will be the natural variability you see in any kind of survey results. And you know, I wouldn't put too much reliance on that. But what's interesting is when you start seeing consistent patterns, as we have been seeing over the recent years, from a net negative flow, a reversal, um, to a, a net positive flow. Now these are very small numbers. This is going from you know minus five thousand to plus five thousand when you look at the kind of the old Europeans. Um, in terms of those who are changing residency for a longer period. Um, but that may well be a response to economic conditions. Um, obviously, the new European countries are not going to the euro. Um, not all of old of Europe. Well, old Europe is um, generally part of the eurozone, but obviously some countries are not um, suffering kind of poor economic situation. Um, 
Germany obviously isn't, um, other countries are. Um, but some of what we're seeing here may well be a response to the Eurozone crisis. Um, it's interesting, it's not just about the rise in inflows, the pink line, which is kind of marked there, but there's also some indication that people are leaving less, the fall in the emigration line as well. Because people, perhaps, who came here, perhaps on a temporary basis, um, may kind of look back home and think, actually, it's not very good there, I'm not allowed to get work out there, so actually maybe I'll stay in the UK a bit longer. So there's some of that going on there. But I'd emphasise, these are very, very small numbers. In terms of the 216,000 net migrants we were seeing, you know, plus 5,000 is really near, neither here nor there. So is the Eurozone having an impact? Yeah, it probably is. Um, is it having a significant impact? No, probably not from this data. Um, Non-EU migration. So this, these are essentially the same ONS charts. Um, this is for all reasons for coming. So this is the total for everyone who comes here as a long-term migrant from outside of the European Union. Um, very interesting. I mean, obviously, quite high levels of net migration. This is um, over 200,000. Broad, broadly speaking, it accounts for most of, you know, would account for most of the net migration figure. Um, the positive European contribution is kind of balanced by the negative British contribution. Um, and it's been reasonably stable, the inflows and outflows actually have been reasonably stable over quite, quite a significant period of time, um, increase in the early 2000s, but since then it's not been a lot of a variation. Um, but that's the long-term picture for people coming from outside the EU. We're saying that over half of the total inflow are people from outside the EU. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the composition of that inflow because it's not, this is not about the labour migration anymore um, and I'm going to come back to that. Um, but the key, key fact is that six in ten of the non-EU migrants um, coming to the UK, long-term migrants, um, are coming to study now and that's really different from what it was five or six years ago. Um, for the year ending 2005 that figure was just one third and it's now six out of ten. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, because it's obviously part of the current debate. <laughs> um, students, what do we mean when we talk about student migrants? Um, I think the picture a lot of people have in their head when they talk about student migrants are essentially university students or young people um, you know, attending universities. Um, but only half of the non-EU students are in universities. Um, that's from the Office Research that was published in December 2010. Um, so the public debate doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of the visas that are being issued by the UK Border Agency. I can't emphasise that point enough. Um, I think it's a real disjuncture in the, in the debate at the moment. More people are studying um, as postgraduates and undergraduates, which is interesting. I mean, again, that may not be people's common perception of the student inflows, even within the university sector. Um, roughly speaking, it's very hard to estimate. There's not a single source that allows you to do this. But when you look at all the data put together in the various numbers, Probably around half of the student migrants are coming for more than a year. So there's half that are probably coming for less than a year. Um, again, that's an interesting difference. Um, of those who are coming for more than a year, the long-term migrants, 80% of them are from outside the EU when you look at just students. And between 2005 and 2010, uh, as I mentioned, very significant increase in the non-EA student admissions to the UK. They rose by 80%, and that compares to a 3% rise in just general visitors. Um, so it's a really big, big change. Um, one of the other things we've published recently, and I spoke at some of these seminars about a year ago now, um, was the migrant journey. 
That was evidence looking at um, people who flow through the immigration system and showed that roughly of, of the cohort that we looked at, which were those arriving in 2004, for students around a fifth was still in the UK five years after arrival, which again is just an interesting additional picture of, you know, of the students and kind of how many may stay for a longer term in the UK. Um, quite a lot of those have gone into jobs. Um, not many had got settlement at that stage because after five years, not many of them would have been eligible for settlement, but some of them will go on to settle and stay here. Um, one of the other interesting aspects um, are that we do come across, I mean, the UK Border Agency is an enforcement agency. It doesn't just issue visas. It also has to enforce the immigration laws and carries out various bits of enforcement action. Um, now, there's lots of issues with looking at enforcement data and intelligence data. Um, it's not kind of very pure statistics, but it can give you insights. And it's very interesting that some, um, you know, that was publicised over the summer was some enforcement action that took place in London, the Mayapple campaign, or Operation Mayapple as it was known. Um, that identified essentially 2,000 legal immigrants who then returned home. And these are ones who found to be regular migrants and returned home, of whom one in five originally came on a student visa, um, which is, again, an interesting fact, I think. Um, I'll just mention student visitors briefly. Um, they're a separate category of statistics, so nothing that I've mentioned has included them. Um, they're essentially people coming for shorter courses. Um, again, people ask the question, has there been displacement, you know, um, the reductions in tier four student inflows has been displaced to student visitors being probably short term. Um, there may have been, but it's really not very significant in number. Um, the main nationalities among student visitors are just totally different from the nationalities that feature in the student visa data. Um, for student visitors, I mean, the numbers are dominated by Americans, Brazilians, Russians, Japanese. Um, for the student visas, the largest nationality group, nationality <coughs> groups, are Chinese, Indians, and Pakistanis. Um, just just to show you um, something with different data that is available, um, these are three data sets. Um, the dark line at the top are admissions, um, essentially people counting when they cross the border, um, landing cards, uh, basically. Um, the dotted grey line just below it are the numbers of visas that have been issued to um, students, excluding their dependents and excluding student visitors. And the purple line are the IPS estimates of, of non-EU immigration. Only non-EU immigration because obviously visas and you know, they only count you know, for visa nationals. A couple of things strike, will strike you from this chart. Um, the IPS data is considerably lower than the other data sets and that's because the international passage area is looking at long-term migrants. People intend to stay for over a year. So it's kind of an obvious explanation really. Um, it's interesting, perhaps, to note that the gap is closed slightly in recent periods, which may reflect some of the policy um, changes and some of the some of the impacts that's had on the student sector. Um, but it's you know it's still broadly broadly speaking a similar sort of place. The other really obvious thing is to note the consistency in the trend between the three series, which is actually really good because it does mean that we can look at the visa data, which is obviously issued and we kind of produce that at a much, much more rapid pace than we're able to kind of produce survey data um, as a kind of leading indicator of what might happen with student trends. The student visa, visa data is going down there. So I put that arrow on ONS, don't do things like that. <laughs> um, but, you know, just to kind of point your eye to the fact that we're probably going to see a reduction in the long-term student migrants in, over the next few quarters, judging from what we've seen from the visa data. Um, but it's kind of reassuring that actually the data does actually stack up and hold together. Um, there is consistency between the different series, even when you drill down into the ONS IPS data, um, looking at just students, for example. 
um, and just a little bit more on students. Um, there are other sources of data. Um, the last chart had a little note mentioning the Home Office visa statistics. Um, very significant drop in the year ending June 2012, 30% decrease, but obviously really to make judgments, you really need to wait for the kind of next quarter's data to be sort of August, September, October. So, sorry, August, September inflows, um, which don't feature in that, but I mean, that's a very large fall. When you look at um, the university sector on its own, which obviously is half of um, student visa cohorts, um, uh, these are the UCAS data for undergraduate applications. Um, the big falls have been in numbers of applications from UK students um, and others around the EU. Um, numbers of applications from non-EU students um, appear to have continued to rise. They're up 10% this year in the, the latest figures that I've seen anyway from UCAS. Again, interesting point, I guess, sort of underneath some of the debates on student <laughs> minors, because the current policy changes are not intended to impact on universities' ability to recruit, um, and they do not appear to be currently at the moment. Um, that's not necessarily the kind of flavour of the debate that you hear in, in, uh, in normal discussion, normal public discourse. Okay, let's look at migration for work. Um, so these are all work-related migrants measured, again, through the International Passenger Survey. It's, it's interesting, I mean, although the numbers are quite large, there are also now pretty much even numbers of, of outflows as there are inflows. So the net migration impact of work now is very, very small. Um, again, that's interesting. When people talk about migration, and for other countries, it is absolutely true that most migration is work-based. Um, in the UK, we are in a very different place. Um, and it's interesting because obviously one can you know, start um, hypothesising about the kind of circularity of migration, where lots of people come here to work now, are coming on a temporary basis, they work for maybe one year, two years, five years, but then they go home again. Um, it's, it's difficult to capture that information with reliability in the statistics because we don't track individuals um, as they come in and, and leave the country yet. I mean, potentially with e-borders, one might be able to do those sorts of things in the future, but we don't do it at the moment. But again, the statistics kind of lead you to those sorts of conclusions. Does work migration actually respond to normal sort of economic factors? I just put this chart together from sort of usual GDP changes and, and work-related um, long-term international migration, just to show you that broadly speaking it does, but not in a very precise relationship. Um, but basically, when the economy is growing, so does um, the work migration, and vice versa, when the economy is declining, um, the opposite will happen, although interestingly work-related migration has fallen much more sharply than perhaps the current state of the economy would, would lead you to um, suppose, if you're going to try and model this in this very simple way. Um, but essentially, sorry, if you can't see that, the dark bars are changes in GDP um, for rolling four quarters, and the lighter bars, green, are work-related net, net migration. I should talk about the census briefly. Um, massively important source um, for people who are interested in migration this time. Um, previously less so, although it's always been quite important. This time it's much more important because there are a lot of additional questions that have been asked people about things that will help us understand um, not only their migrant status, but obviously um, the situation that migrants find themselves in and their integration within, within the UK. So it's a, it's a brilliant source. It's now asking, well, 
the passport they hold, um, country they were born in, how long they've been in the UK, and things like that. So, I mean, you can imagine this is going to be a really rich source once the data is kind of finalised and published, which will probably be um, not until sort of ne next year. Um, but there are there were hints in the um, latest, uh, sorry, the first census release in July um, of some of the, some of the impacts of things that we've seen in, in previous charts. Um, lots of press coverage about the, the big increase in the population over the last decade, 7.1%. Um, it was the largest percentage increase in any census over the last 100 years, and the last largest numerical increase ever, in fact. Um, and as I was saying earlier, um, roughly half of the increase was accounted for by migration. And when you look at where the migrants are going, of course, we know lots of migrants come to London. London has the largest proportion of, of migrants of any sort of area region in the country. And you can see that in the census data because they're published, they were published in July by local authorities. Um, largest areas of growth in population generally were in Tower Hamlets, New York, and, and Manchester was the third largest. Um, some very significant um, changes. Um, what was interesting in particular, and it kind of again reflects some of the debates that, have been that people have been having around the country, but there were also very large increases in areas that really haven't seen those sorts of changes in population previously, um, and certainly haven't seen large amounts of migration previously. Um, some of the parts of the east of England, East Anglia, for example, um, local authorities like Peterborough, South Derbyshire, Boston. Um, has anyone been to Boston? Lovely little kind of rural town, very pretty, um, but has had a large influx and does get a large influx of um, Eastern European and New Accession migrants. Um, South Holland, Uttlesford, very large changes for these sorts of local authorities. Again, very different from what they've experienced previously and I, I think that colours some of the public debate. There's also an interesting aspect of the census released in July which just identified the difference between what the census found and the population estimates that ONS have been producing based on the information they had available prior to the census. And they essentially found a gap of around half a million extra people. And they're doing extra work to investigate this to help explain it. Um, now, but broadly speaking, they think roughly half or 45% was due to problems with the previous census, 2001 census. Those of you who were around at the time may remember the National Statistician talking about lots of young men going abroad. Um, to Ibiza, I think, was the, the initial um, quote that was used. I couldn't deny using that quote, um, quote now, but anyway, there's lots of stuff in the press about that. But essentially, you know, it is believed that the 2001 census did undercount um, particularly um, young men by a reasonably significant degree um, for a census. But of that half a million, slightly over half, ONS believe, was due to an underestimation of international migration. Um, and they conclude by saying this looks like what happened was that the International Passenger Survey did not respond quickly enough to the changes in the patterns of migration in the mid-2000s. So essentially, when European accession hit, you may remember that some of the Home Office commissioned research which said there'd be some thousands of East European migrants, but not large numbers. It turned out, well, we've got over 600 getting on for 700,000 poles, for example, now. You know, we got it massively wrong, undoubtedly. Um, but so did everyone. Um, and the IPS suffered from that because they didn't recognise the changes quickly enough, weren't able to respond in terms of the sampling um, quickly enough to pick those up for that mid-period. From the evidence, it looks like the IPS did then change. And if you understand the design of the IPS, um, I mean, the sampling theory is based on passenger arrivals at different ports and so on. So again, if the nature of Eastern European migration into the UK was, for example, to come via Newcastle Airport, 
rather that way. Um, it might be hard to pick that up in the first year, but once you've got passenger flows data, the following year you start changing the sample and you kind of do, do pick it up. That appears to be what's happened in the IPS, but for that first year, roughly around 2005, it looks like the IPS was undercounting um, the new flows of migrants. That impacted on the ONS population estimates, um, and that's what we're seeing in the, in the most recent census results. To end, um, with a couple of other things that appeared in the, the papers recently, um, this is from the British Social Attitude Survey, um, number 29. Um, <laughs> uh, and it was not the first time I've asked about public attitudes to immigration generally, but it's the first time I've actually done some really kind of clever things and split the sample and look at different sorts of attitudes and, um, and how those relate. And I just thought I'd just show these because they were in the press um, beginning of this week and it seems worth mentioning them. Um, it's very well known from lots and lots of surveys um, that the British public appear to be more cynical about the levels of immigration. I don't personally take that as being as necessarily reflecting on the system about migrants per se. I think it's just about the levels, and I think that goes back to the initial chart I showed, which showed the levels of migration, the numbers and volumes, are radically different now than they were in the past. Um, I think it's important to make that point, because again, there are a lot of European countries that just report um, less sorry, lower statistics for these sorts of questions within similar surveys, and there are some comparative surveys actually run internationally now um, on this. But actually, when you talk to migrants about how welcoming those countries are and, um, you know, and why they might choose the UK over other countries, you know, they don't necessarily look very positively on those countries or more positively than the UK. So you know, it's, it's interesting when you kind of dig down and try and interpret this, what it actually means about public attitudes. But um, again, you know, when you ask people, do they think the numbers of immigrants should be reduced, um, either a little or a lot, something like 75% um, say they'd like to see immigration reduced in the UK. This is the same, roughly the same number you get from any survey asking a similar question. Um, what's also interesting from the British Social Attitude Survey is you can get behind which sorts of migrants they want to see less of, which they'd actually quite like to see more of. Um, I, I won't go into too much detail, but essentially the British Social Action Service split a sample and asked roughly equal numbers, slightly different questions to kind of tease out those differences. Um, and I won't try and kind of describe all this in great detail, but if you can see the numbers, you'll get the point that essentially they looked at two groups, migrants from Eastern Europe and migrants from Muslim countries like Pakistan, I think was the phrase used in the survey, to try and you know, tease out um, very specific differences. What's interesting is actually that difference between countries of origin didn't make a lot of difference to public attitudes in this survey. Um, it made some difference, but not a lot. Um, what made the big difference was the difference between professionals and unskilled labourers when you ask, ask that difference. People seemed actually very relaxed about professionals and skilled workers coming to the UK. Um, they were a lot less relaxed, a lot more negative um, for people who were unskilled labourers. And I mean, again, much more negative about unskilled labourers coming in search of work, slightly less negative, but still negative about those who are actually coming to fill definite jobs. It's, it's really interesting. Um, sort of set findings, well worth going on the website and having a look at that in more detail. Um, this is a bit more detail. Um, just look at student migrants, they did a similar thing. Um, and it's kind of 
it's almost mother than apple pie. You know, if you ask any members of the public, would you rather have good students or bad students? <laughs> um, <laughs> however, they asked that in a slightly more subtle way than that. Um, and essentially the numbers, you know, and this wasn't asking them to make that choice, it was just taking two groups and asking them different questions. I should emphasize that, it was very professionally done. Um, but those who were given the question about whether they'd uh, you know, want more or less, or whether, so actually this is about whether they thought student minds were good or bad for Britain, but asked specifically about student minds with good grades, they were relatively positive. When asked about student minds with bad grades, perhaps unsurprisingly, they were very negative. Um, that was also divided between students from different sorts of countries, uh, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Muslim countries, and East Asia. Um, frankly, the different source country did not make any difference at all. Um, so it's really about the quality of the student inflow, not where they're from.